You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. I'm Rodney Davis. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Rodney, Towner, Patrick, I feel like... uh... I've given our listening audience a break from me for a few weeks, so I apologize for being back, but I'm back. Patrick, Tony Bennett. That's uh, It was sad news this morning. We've got a client uh, in front of the firm, Jason Pitcock, who's a, he's a renaissance man, and he it was the first thing he sent me this morning, and uh, I was just reading the obituary. What an incredible life. Yeah, and uh, Towner. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 because I'm a 70 year old trapped in a 44 year old's body, I actually watch CBS Sunday morning. I usually record it actually and watch it Sunday night, uh, along with 60 Minutes. And they had a piece a little while back on uh, Tony Bennett singing during COVID. And Patrick, you had mentioned he, I think he had Alzheimer's um, uh, fairly severely, but he was, he was able through his own music to sort of beat Alzheimer's for three minutes at a time. Uh, and it was pretty neat to to watch the piece that they had. So that's sad that he, he passed away. Yeah. I was just saying the times did a great write up and, you know, I, Connor, I feel like you too, like a 70 year old on the inside, but there's so much you don't know if you're younger, cause you didn't live through it. But I didn't realize the relationship he had with Frank Sinatra. And it said that he was basically his mentor. Um, and the times quoted him as saying that he said, you know, dollar for dollar, Tony Bennett's the best singer in the business, which is pretty high praise from, uh, from Sinatra. That's cool. Very cool. That's cool. Um, well guys, been a busy, been a busy run up to, uh, the August recess here in Washington. Towner, you and I were hoofing it around the hill this week to just, and, and last week, just, I think I had four clients in town and in the span of uh, five work days. So, I mean, it's just been, it's just been a very intense period in Washington. Um, Rodney, your former colleagues are, appear to actually be legislating and getting things done. Imagine that. Imagine that. Well, you know, I'm, I look at, I look at what my former colleagues are doing and I see great policy coming out of uh, chairman Graves and Rick Larson, ranking member Rick Larson on the transportation infrastructure committee. FAA bill had some, some polarizing amendments, some surprise uh, amendment failures, uh, but in the end, I think they're going to get a bill out of the House, but are they going to get one out of the Senate and be able to conference before the end of uh, end of this year? I still don't know if that'll happen, but you're right. There's a lot of bipartisanship, doesn't get a lot of attention. And I'm, you know, as somebody who's banned from going to the Hill during this first year of working with you guys, um, I really want to go. But I'm also, I just sit back and smile because the House is open again. The Senate is open again. The Capitol is open again. You have tourists. This is what our Capitol should be like. I wasn't with you guys when the Capitol was shut down. I was screaming and yelling that it should open years ago. But getting back to normal, I think, will help the bipartisan nature that we certainly don't have as much of anymore. 
for our listeners, when Rodney says he's banned from going to the Capitol, that has nothing to do with this congressional ethics and lobbying ban. They just don't want him there. And yeah, the Capitol Police and it's all personality. said, keep that guy out of here. <laughs> I will say, Rodney, when you said there was some epic amendment failures this week, uh, those were actually epic Cozen O'Connor public strategies wins on behalf of clients. Uh, to beat back those amendments. So, so uh, Congrats, congratulations. Um, we'll I, I appreciate your work. We went, we went, we went 100% uh, on, on amendments on behalf of clients, whether they wanted them out or they wanted them in. Uh, we got 100% of them uh, successfully done. So, uh, congratulations. And Howard, I don't know if you're going to mention, but you actually got to witness uh, the Israeli president give the address to. I, joint session i did um i was able to uh go see the uh president of israel give a historic speech on the 75th anniversary of israel's independence what was it like what was kind uh, of the environment well very 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 bipartisan i would say i think intense and celebratory um the gallery naturally you had you had people from, uh, you had a number of people visiting from Israel in the gallery. You had a number of uh, uh, prominent American Jews in the gallery. This was the only the second time a president of Israel has addressed a joint session of Congress. And the last time was this president's father, who was president of Israel. So there was like synergy all over the place. You had Harry Truman's grandson, in the gallery and so on and so forth but but it was also very intense it's a very intense moment in the history of of israel um with all the questions swirling around their independent judiciary and and things netanyahu is trying to push and i think herzog made the point it's in it's an interesting period for the united states as as far as the things we're dealing with and and confronting but i I would say overall a celebration of the alliance and and recognition of the alliance and that there's value in both directions. And to me, I mean, obviously I'm Jewish and I have great affection for the state of Israel, but again, bipartisan, a bipartisan, there, was, there wasn't a lot of disagreement in that chamber. Um, Thank goodness. So, so you know that that's that's a sense of of what it was like, Patrick. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, there is some disagreement outside of that chamber, however. Yes, there is. There is some disagreement outside of the chamber. I'll elaborate, Towner. Well, I you know we had some we had uh, the the chair of the Progressive Caucus, uh, Congresswoman Jayapal, who who made some statements that that she then later, in total fairness, walked back. Um, but it's a I think I'm going to say this with as as nonpartisan as humanly possible. I think there are members of Congress on both sides of the aisle that are trying to reevaluate relationships with allies, trying to reevaluate relationships with traditional allies, I should say, reevaluating relationships, uh, how U.S. is positioned in global conflicts. Um, I think you see this a little bit more on the progressive side as it relates to Israel and Palestine. I think you see this, obviously, so much more on the conservative side as it relates to Russia and Ukraine uh, in a number of places. And so 
it's in my opinion, it's it's probably a healthy debate. Both of those debates are potentially healthy debates because I think uh, my middle of the road sort of uh, right leaning values of we support the heck out of Ukraine and we support the heck out of Israel, uh, I think will win out at the end of the day. So I don't mind having that debate. Um, uh, but it's a it's an interesting uh, time that that some norms in our foreign policy are certainly being questioned, maybe as much now as the last time might be, you know, the Vietnam War, to be honest with you. I mean, NATO has been questioned. Yes. Obviously. Yeah. Um, there's been an ebb and now a flow. Now that yeah. is Marjorie Taylor Greene. So let's, uh, you know, like, like. Well, it's Donald Trump. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and yeah, I mean, look, that I guess that's the point is. um and and Herzog's fundamental message was let's not take for granted what we have, um, and and throw it away. And yeah, there's yes at the fringes. I guess that's that's the constant question I get is like with the client I was I was with at the joint joint address. How much do you guys talk to like the people on the extremes on either side? That's what they were asking me. I get that. And yeah. of course, the answer is, well, pretty much not at all. For, but, for like elected officials? or is yeah. That, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. And I get that question constantly or some form of that question. And yeah, I mean, the reality is it's like cliche to say it at this point, but they get all the oxygen. Um, They just don't matter that much in terms of like the actual functioning of government, but they get, you know, the, the AOCs and the MTGs get all the, they get all the oxygen and, and they make things look a certain way when, when they're not like Jayapal or AOC can get up there and say whatever they want about Israel. By the way, it's harmful. It's, it's, there's an undercurrent of anti-Semitism in what they say. Uh, I'm not afraid to say that, but does it like actually, I mean, it's harmful, but does it actually undermine the policy of the United States of America? No. And it's, I don't know, this juxtaposition that we're grappling with, which they're grappling with, and I think the whole world is grappling with, of extremism versus like kind of obscuring and getting in the way of the normal functioning of government. I feel like across the globe, that's what, unless you're living in an an autocracy, that's what we're all, that's what, that's the undercurrent flowing throughout the, the globe. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, like Tanner pointed out, the changing lines on American foreign policy and just how both parties are kind of considering and reconsidering certain alliances it's interesting too on the congressional side like what are the extremes because i think we all witness this you know if you spend enough time in washington members that one year you view as like the extremists are then committee chairs like seven or eight years later if they hang around long enough and it just becomes it's just so interesting trying to figure out who even are the extremes who are the establishment because it seems like those definitions change rodney i'm sure you saw it in the caucus right i mean it just it 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 evolves over time and then you kind of don't you don't really know who's who. Well, it it evolves, but the definition continues to evolve. 
based upon who decides to define whether you're too conservative or not conservative enough or too liberal or too progressive or not progressive enough. I mean, I never thought I'd live to see the day where somebody called Jim Jordan a rhino, but that has happened recently. He's um, like a perfect example. Yeah, and, and look, they also understand if they truly want to legislate, then they have to be engaged. And Jim is a perfect example. He was a flamethrower when I got there. He was somebody you knew was going to disrupt whatever process we were doing, even though we were in the majority, but then decided he wanted to engage. And Kevin McCarthy gave him an opportunity to uh, to run a committee, be a ranking member on a committee. And, and Jim has more than exceeded expectations of being able to work together. But what's happened? He is now criticized by some in his own party for not being conservative enough. And think about this. Surprises are across the board. Who would have thought Marjorie Taylor Greene would have been kicked out of the Freedom Caucus? Because why? She's not conservative enough? Come on. I mean, it's it becomes an issue where you have outside influences defining personal interactions and the ability to have personal interactions within the House of Representatives, within your own caucus, within your own conference. That is the, the, the most frustrating part of, of governing because sometimes groups or individuals will farm out their ability to legislate to outside organizations who have no loyalty, they have no friendships. But Howard mentioned earlier the question from uh, your client that, you know, do people on the extremes talk to those of us who are not on the extremes? And the answer is yes, because you have to be able to build personal relationships. And in the end, well, you know, that's why I texted Corey Bush a happy birthday today. It's her birthday today, the same as my wife. And in the end, do Corey and I agree on policy? Probably not a lot. But does that mean I'm not going to, to converse with somebody that I will fly back and forth with on a regular basis to see how the job's going and find out where we can agree? No, that's it's called life and Congress and communication between members of Congress is no different than communication in any workplace, any family, et cetera. I will say, though, that relationship is totally different than the relationship you will have with members and staff now that you are on the outside looking in. So you're, you know, having that personal relationship is great, but having even access because Corey Bush and AOC and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert don't want to take a policy meeting. They could care less for the most part because they have formed their opinion as to what is going to get the most clicks when they do their little, you know, Insta video or whatever else. And and that's it. I mean, the the odds of us being able to go in, even if it's an issue that greatly affects their district that a client has and it, and it affects their constituents, the odds of going in and being able to have a meeting with one of those four members of Congress, for example, is almost zero. Because I've tried. I've tried a lot to do well, that. Tom, to that point, too, just on those types of members yeah. and not wanting to form policy positions, I feel like I'd be curious your guys' perspective, but if like just at home, kind of like in our community, if you're just, if politics ever comes up with neighbors or people I live with, I feel like one of the most common, you know, particularly from more Republican or conservative leaning folks, but I hear it actually from people across the political aisle, th th this just, everyone sort of 
says term limits will fix everything. Like I hear it all the time, like just from friends or people who aren't in our business. And they're just like, if we had term limits, it would fix everything. And I'm always like, I just don't think that's true. I I really don't. Because then you're going to have an entire Congress of like these types of people we're talking about who never get their sea legs. Like one of the things you mentioned, Jim Jordan, uh, Rodney, we think as members are there a little longer, everyone, there's this perspective that, oh, they just get more corrupt. They get more institutionalized. They get more DC. I just think like in any job, they learn what the heck they're doing. (laughs) They learn... They learn how to make an impact and how to build, you know, influence within their caucus and they move up on committees and they become subcommittee chairman, all that. And I think it makes them better at the job and want to actually do stuff. Um, There's no how- perfect system. Right. I yeah. mean, you can change the system and whatever it is, there this isn't an exercise in, in perfection. You're and, right, Howard is yeah. it's not. Uh but most people that, that talk about term limits don't realize we've had almost 70% turnover in the U.S. House over the time that I served, which was 10 years. Without and term limits. Totally. That's a yeah. great. I've, I've never used that. That's such a good stat. That's We would, yeah. we would have gotten rid of Rodney four years earlier. So that, you know, I mean, you got to. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't worry, Patrick. You and, you and many of your friends tried, but uh, I still came back. But But in the end. Uh, you got to look at seniority. So I started out in the, you know, started out in the like 379 in 2012. And I left my last seniority was probably right around 150 out of 435. And I wasn't considered someone who stood there, who, who had been there that long. And in the end, it, it's ironic because I would always get criticized by term limits groups because I didn't sign any pledges. I didn't sign a pledge to do anything that any outside group wanted me to do, regardless of whether or not I agreed with them. And the term limits folks would come after me and I would gleefully point out that I am serving with many people who signed that pledge to only serve three terms in Congress and have been here for decades. Yep, totally. As a, as a staffer and now a lobbyist over the course of my career, and certainly like a institutionalist, I, I hate term limits because I think it ruins the organization. Yeah. I love term limits because do you know who becomes powerful during term limits? You would become the king of the rules committee if we had term limits. No one one would know what the heck the rules are. Yeah. Staff and lobbyists become the most powerful entities in a in a legislative body that has term limits. And that if when you explain that, if if anybody, if your neighbors ask you about that again, Patrick, you explain to them, you know who becomes the most powerful. Staff and lobbyists, the unelected become the most powerful. And that is not the way to run a legislative body, in my opinion. However, I wouldn't mind it because we'd make a lot more money even. So, you know, it'd be fine. But it members of Congress. I'm pro term limits now. You've created (laughs) some self-interest. I like it. Flipping this debate. Your neighbors are now anti and you're pro. We saw that happen, though. State of Florida implemented uh, term limits. The only way you were able to three terms, three two year terms in the state house in Florida, you were able to serve a fourth if you were speaker. So they just the freshman class decides who their speaker is going to be six years later. And is able to serve an extra term. So we know in Florida who the speaker of the house is currently, who it'll be next term and who it'll be the term after that. And but it's all about the competition for incoming uh, members of of the Florida House as to which 
staffer you can hire and you go to them and you beg them and you, you know, cause that's the only way you're going to hit the ra- the ground running. So funny. It's unbelievable. So I was talking yesterday to a Washington post reporter who was telling me that they were out talking to Pennsylvania voters about the Republican primary. And I just have one word for you, Trump. Trump, 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 Trump. He's the candidate they're all talking about. And I guess for me, and and maybe we can make some sense of this for a listening audience, I guess, or, or not, juxtaposing the juxtaposition of um what we see each and every day where yeah there's the extremes but they are actually legislating things are actually getting done with the the anger that persists out there in the population cuz trump in my opinion is yes he's a he's talented in the sense that you know he knows how to take people's like feelings and these undercurrents running through society and he knows how to play them to promote himself and turn it to his advantage and and he's done that his entire life frankly um but he's just a vessel in my opinion he's just a vessel for people's dissatisfaction and anger at the system and and I, I, Rodney, I wish your former colleagues could find a way to show the American people what they're actually doing Be- and like communicate and, and operate in a way that's like demonstrates to the population that they actually care about them. And Washington is actually like not the horribly broken place that the um extremes make it make it sound like it is and 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 I feel like I feel like that's just being lost. I mean, look, of course a lot of the anger out there is also it's economic um but it's it's a it's lashing out against the establishment is the political phenomenon we've been dealing with for for the last however many years and I feel like there's there's a disconnect between what actually happens on the ground and and what people think happens out there in the in the in the country. Well, Howard, as somebody who who experienced yeah. a lack of media coverage every time I talked about what we did in a bipartisan way while I served, um, there's got to be some accountability within the media organizations too. They're the ones that want the fight. Totally. They want the extremes. They want to have a they they want to have a battle royale. They don't want to talk about FAA reauthorization and Rick Larson and Sam Graves kumbaya and a bill through the house with overwhelming bipartisan support. You know what they talked about instead? They talked about, oh, an amendment failed because to to check on to to get Pete Buttigieg's Department of Transportation plane records. That was the story rather than Look at this bipartisan success. So my question would have been to the Washington Post reporter, if you want 
if if you want the American people to care about something more than former President Trump, quit giving him the bandwidth, quit giving him the oxygen. And I just got an alert uh, as we're on this on this podcast that the judge, Judge Eileen Cannon, has set President Trump's classified document trial for May of 2024. And mm. I will say today, based on the primary schedule, I will bet unless something major changes and and somebody can overtake him in New Hampshire, I will bet he will have the Republican nomination by that time. That will be historic. <laughs> That's one word for it. Shit show is another word. Okay. Or two well, words. You know, the family listeners like Evan are not going to be happy with your foul language there. I apologize. I apologize to our listening audience, but sometimes Bob, can you beep that for the uh sometimes <laughs> sometimes a little expletive uh for effect uh works on this podcast, Rod. Language so. like that is bullshit. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Do we have a seven second on this podcast? Do we have a? I don't think so, Tanner. <laughs> but it is not interesting, Rodney. You're right. I mean that if that syncs up that way, that's that is wild. It's not going to happen. I mean, what do you think? What's what do you not going to happen? happen? They'll kick it ahead again. Oh, you think the trial won't happen? Or the nomination won't happen? Well, that's yeah, what yeah, he, yeah, yeah. They're going to have that dang trial because all Trump wants is to be president. When when the trial would come up, his whole goal is to push this as far back as humanly possible so that he can essentially pardon himself or he can't be prosecuted at that point in time. Cause he'd be president. Yeah. But he'll run on that trial. Oh yeah. I mean, he will. And New Hampshire's the only backstop right now. That's where his numbers are a little softer. Uh, but if he comes out of Iowa and New Hampshire with victories, and then goes into South Carolina and wins versus Governor, former Governor Haley and Senator Scott. Here's a question for you, because, I mean, I feel like everyone's always asking, like, who's got the best chance of overtaking him? Who? How many, by the time we get to the New Hampshire primary, how many opponents do you think he will have on the ballot? Oh, more than more than they're are credible. I think you'll probably have still at least four or five credible alternatives. Or, yeah. But they but but who's where is the coalescing going to go? Uh it certainly uh, initially everybody thought it would be Governor DeSantis. But he obviously has made some mistakes within his campaign. He's got a pretty hefty burn rate. And he is in second place in New Hampshire now, but I don't know if he gets any more support. He has to turn things around. Uh Tim Scott just got a a, a large investment for his super PAC from Larry Ellison, I believe. I think it was $40 million. Uh, so who knows what Tim can do with that? But yeah. it, I, I think it'll come down to probably the Trump, DeSantis, Tim Scott, and one of those three, or, or those three, those other two besides Trump are the only ones that I think could build some momentum and take him out I, right now. I guess... Depersonalizing it from any particular candidate, including Trump. How do we bring back these voters that feel like they have no hope to the point where they have to vote for Donald Trump? To me, that's the that's the central question. 
we face. I mean, how do we how do we bring people back back together? And I'm not. I think one of the worst things that's happened in politics in the last 20 years was Hillary Clinton calling all those people deplorable, calling anybody who supported Donald Trump deplorable. And and I freaking hate Trump. And I think he I think he is deplorable. But I think people have their reasons based on their life circumstances. And that's not it has to do with feeling left behind and their economic situation and and anger at the system, which I I understand. But I guess what I'm asking is how do we how do how do how do we show them what's actually that like there are good people working for them in Washington, Rodney, that there are people thinking about the everyday person, the common man and woman. How do we bring them back to a place where they vote for good people as opposed to somebody who's just a vessel for their for their anger? Because it's not just about making our way through this election. It's about the future of the country and being united. And I don't, I don't mean to get all philosophical and hokey, Patrick, but uh, anyway, those are that's what I think I'm it's a good question. I mean, my hope, I guess, and, you know, this is all just hopeful, you know, trying to hope we're going to get to a better place than where we are now, is that we're going to see after this election some hopefully some real generational shift in terms of the leaders who are being offered up at the presidential level. I think this will be the last sort of baby boomer, you know, centric election, at least with the candidates on the ballot, just given purely the age of of that generation. And then I feel like we've had a tendency to, in our history, when we go through difficult periods, you know, we have leaders step up that change the conversation. And I, I agree with everything that's been said about Trump. He's a unique figure in American politics and history. And I don't think a bunch of copycats, you know, in the next couple elections are going to be successful replicating kind of what he's done. I, I tend to think someone will come up with a different message. And I hope hope it's a uniting one. Like I, I mentioned on the podcast before, I like a lot of what I hear out of Tim Scott there's Republican and Democratic governors across the country that I think are doing good things in their states. And I think the conversation will start to change whenever we move past Trump. It's not going to mean that all of those people we're talking about who feel disenfranchised and left behind are going to suddenly, you know, get behind a more optimistic, uniting message. But I just think once he's not at the center of American politics, hopefully someone will step up and claim the microphone who who has a message that's better for our times and better for for all of us well the american sure. people go ahead Marley. the american people clearly want candidates like donald trump they clearly want candidates like joe biden who i would argue in the last presidential election and since he's been elected has tried to placate the progressive wing of his party more than what any of us would have thought he would do so the American people are the ones that are choosing this divisiveness. They're choosing the disruption. So they're going to have to change. But the only way that changes is we just have to get that generational shift Patrick mentioned. I mean, look, at, if we're, as a Republican, Donald Trump 
in my opinion, is the only presidential candidate we have that can lose to Joe Biden. Why? Because the area that Patrick lives in, in suburban Chicago, that used to be solidly voting for Republicans, has flipped. Does, is it because they like your ideas better, Patrick? I honestly don't think so. It's Probably because not. they freaking One hate ideas specifically, Donald not Trump. Democratic ideas. They don't like my ideas. Just <laughs> yeah. Well, you're a sellout. You're you're too. You're you're part of the problem. Um, exactly. But, but in the end, those voters are voting against Donald Trump and against Republicans because of his personality. Time will tell, and I'm not optimistic that we're not going to have similar candidates in future presidential elections that will resemble more parliamentary fights versus policy debates. I just, I don't know. I, I feel yeah. like if if we could show, so I was I was up on the hill yesterday, Counter, you and I were on issues related to the state of the banks and the banking crisis, which on some level has abated, but Silicon Valley and, and the, the state of the, the regional and community banks in this country. There was a hearing yesterday um, in the Senate Banking Committee. And if you couldn't see the members and you just read the words, I think you'd have a really hard time figuring out who was a Republican and who was a Democrat. And I mean, maybe on some level, that's what people are upset about in the sense that they feel like, oh, it's all a game and, you know, they're all working together. But like, we're talking about people like Elizabeth Warren and J.D. Vance. And we're not talking about, you know, people in the middle. And I, I just... Gosh, I feel like this town does a horrible job of of telling its story and communicating to the American public. Um, there's a reason why Congress's approval rating is as cruddy as it is. This town just does a horrible job. Brady Schweitzer agrees with me. Town does a horrible job of communicating to the public the fair consideration and, and frankly somewhat balanced consideration and good exchange of ideas. And I, I think it'd go a long way toward at least making people feel like the system is is working for them if they could communicate the way that business is actually being conducted. Soapbox speech over Towner. You know, I really liked your soapbox speech. I wanted you to keep going. Um <laughs> I'm thinking, though, every week we get on this podcast, we complain we don't have any solutions other than let's not have Donald Trump be the nominee. Well, that seems to be the only my solution is to better communicate and find a way to show the American public, not just putting it on a television channel that nobody watches, yeah. but communicate to the American public what what's actually going on. How are you going to get the public to listen when they're interested well, in the fight? They're interested in, in combat. Yeah. Are you proposing nationalizing the media? No, I'm not. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Sorry. And I think I you're right, Rodney. It is the media on some level. But yeah. 
I don't know. Journalists. But if I was sitting there in the United States, if I were Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer, and I had a, I had a few minutes with the majority leader this week, um, who was lost in the Capitol after the after the speech. He forgot about the House side. He forgot. That's a problem. Around. Literally, literally. Um, but I feel like if I were them and my approval ratings were at 10 percent, I'd sure as hell be working every day to find a way. Hey, John McCain said 15 years ago that Congress's approval rating was down to uh, staff and blood relatives in favor. So, I mean, that's it's been that way for forever. People hate Congress as an institution because they hate institutions in this country. We hate institutions for the most part. We like generic institutions or ideals like the United States of America. We hate Congress. We hate the NFL, but we love our football team. You know, it's you have to have some a visceral emotional connection with the entity. And nobody's out there talking about how great Congress is. It hasn't happened since literally Congress started. Uh, by the second president of the United States, they were talking already about how bad Congress was. So, you know, it's it, it, it's okay. It's okay that Congress is not loved. As long as people still generally like their member of Congress, which on the whole, yeah, I mean, we're very polarized, I get it, but on the whole, you know, 60% of folks still have a positive opinion of their member of Congress, which is like, that's the metric that I always look at. Okay, that's an interesting point. You're never going to get people to like Congress. That's a good point. That's a really good point. As long as they like cool. America... And, and as long as they like their member, Jeff, and it's like, to be- a, like a litmus test issue was just like when you watched what happened on January sixth. Did you, if you, if you're someone who just hates Congress to to the degree that you you know you just watch and you're like you know well who cares that that's happening? I think almost for the mo- like for the most part, people saw that playing out on television. They felt a tremendous sense of grief. Rodney, you were there. I mean, it just, and even if you haven't spent a lot of time there, like, you know, Rodney has a former member we have, you know, working in, in professional government relations. I mean, it felt like, I have to think anyone who had ever stepped foot in that building on an eighth grade tour felt a tremendous sense of like, what has happened to us? Um, you know, I don't know what percentage of people it is. Cause I have a hard time gauging that, but everyone I've talked to, you know, in my personal life, even People I know are on the Republican side. Yeah, I felt very, you know, people who voted for Trump felt very well, affected. Of course, people on the Republican side of the aisle, Patrick. Of it's, course, what? Feel we're angry about. Well, I meant like the, I meant more like the Trump, yeah, you know, contingent. I'm, I'm not talking about as a just, Republican. Yeah. I, I understood what he was saying. You know, <laughs> I, I wanted to clarify it for our <laughs> listening audience. Yeah, you know what I meant. Yeah. Well, Patrick, um, those those kind words that you just said about Republicans doesn't mean that you're not un-American still um, and anti-American totally. because that's who you <laughs> of are. Course. That's exactly uh, who I am. But but it goes back to my point about how does media coverage change the viewpoint of the American voter? All of us. I mean, I, yes, I was on the House floor on January 6th. I was in the Capitol. We've talked about it on here. Um, I stood there uh, certifying the election with Mike Pence till 4.30 in the morning. And everybody, Republican and Democrat, rallied uh, around each other that day because it was abhorrent. It was terrible what happened in the United States of America. 
But as coverage of January 6th went on, uh, people went back to their respective red and blue corners. And unfortunately, there's an unrealistic viewpoint by many voters based upon that more partisan coverage um, that has enveloped what the history of 1-6 should be. It should be something that should never happen again in our nation's history. But to make it look like challenging the electors was something new from Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, and Scott Perry, and Matt Gates. I watched Jamie Raskin try to challenge electors in January of 2017 from states that Trump won. Questioning the yeah. process is not bad, but creating a dynamic where President Trump himself tried to make the American people think that Mike Pence could somehow not accept electors in his role. But I don't ever want a vice president of any party determining who the president of the United States is by accepting yeah. or not accepting what the state said. It's absurd, yeah. but it goes yeah. back to the coverage. And now we're, we're partisan on it again. Yep. What's the Pence presidential campaign going? I don't hear a whole lot about no, it. He has no money and not well. And Tucker Carlson. Kind of like, yeah, I watched a little bit of that. I mean, it's it's you know. Well, Rodney, gonna... I have I have a lot to say about what you just said, but unfortunately, we don't have time to say it. <laughs> I, I mean, I think there's a big difference between challenging electors when. The president of the United States, who has lost an election, is out there telling people to storm the Capitol, then questioning the process and kind of the ordinary course of business. It's just a big difference. But we'll, actually, the, uh, process, the process was not different until the attacks came, until the Capitol was breached. Yeah, the, the backdrop was, was a lot different, though. You had the president of the United States and one of the candidates claiming that the election was stolen. And I understand the process for doing that is the same, but the backdrop was just very, very different. Yeah, the process is fine and has been done by both parties and we can argue whether or not the process should even exist. I don't think it should. And there's a number of members of Congress on both sides of the aisle who are trying to eliminate that process because it's it's not a process we think should actually happen. Uh, but it's a way to register your concerns uh, or voice opposition to the incoming president. The point was is a PR point for the Republicans more than anything else. And that is when January 6th happens, go back in link arms, say this shouldn't happen in America, finalize the election, get the heck out of there. The fact that you still, the fact that Republicans still then raised two objections in Pennsylvania and Arizona, insisted on voting on those that night, post the the events of January 6th in the morning, the visual of that was awful. Yeah. The process was not awful. The process was the process. But have a brain in your head and realize that, you know, people died. People were storming the Capitol. You're standing there around broken glass and you're still voting on an election dispute that, you know, by the way, is not going to succeed. Again, you had the president of the, the sitting president and the who, running for reelection, claiming that falsely claiming that the election was stolen and convincing people 
on the basis of brainwashing people that the election was stolen. It's fundamentally different. It's not a process issue. It's that Right. Shouldn't have come back and done votes on the afternoon of January 6th, trying to show that America exists by overturning an election. That didn't make sense at the time. If Democrats had done it in the reverse, Republicans would have been like, what the heck are you thinking? And, you know, that's that's the point of it is just have a brain on that particular day. We don't have to, you know, dispose of the process. So, well, let me let me tell you, as somebody, again, who was there in the well, um, reading off the electors that were that were sent from the states because of my role on House administration. I was disappointed we had those votes. And I was frankly shocked at some of my colleagues who cast those votes uh, in favor of not certifying the election uh, in those certain states. So, Tanner, you're right. But what has transpired afterwards in the whole January 6th debate in the aftermath, I think, has become has become more about partisan politics rather than about how disgusting that day was and how accountable somebody who broke the law that day by coming into the Capitol, how accountable they should be because they broke the law while we lawmakers were trying to do what the Constitution and tells us to do. Been shot. So and by the way, partisan politics next year, because you're going to see January 6th and every freaking Democratic presidential for so an entire year. So, I course, mean, it's it'll be in every Biden campaign ad there is if Trump's and, the nominee. And the president of the United States broke the law by trying to convince people that were part of the process to undermine the process and change the results in his favor. Bottom line. We're going to have a very public trial about this. We are. As soon as Georgia. <laughs> May 2024. Yeah. We can do live podcasts at the trial. Yeah. I mean, that's, that isn't what that trial is going to be about, though. That's not that particular trial. He hasn't oh, even right. been indicted for one. what we're talking about yet, and he's going to be. Yeah. So I don't know. All right, let's leave it here. We could talk for another hour, Yeah, but we'll pick it up next week. Thanks for joining us, everybody, and we'll be back. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.